Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. seated, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, as we continue our study of the life of Elijah. Today we're talking about decision time. Elijah calls the people of Israel to make a decision. I did some research this week, and and there have been some studies that have been done, and in an average lifetime of 70 years, they say you will make 1,788,500 decisions. That's about 25,000 decisions a year. Albert Camus, a philosopher, said this, and I think it applies here. Life is the sum of your choices. In other words, all those decisions that you make together are going to determine your life. And God uses Elijah to call the children of Israel to a decision moment. And I I believe he the very same challenge he has to, to the children of Israel, he has for us today. Choose today who you're going to serve. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. And I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went and presented himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. So three to three and a half years has gone by. The land is dry. There's this incredible drought. And it is because Elijah has said to Ahab, I'm going to pray. The God of heaven is going to cause a drought as judgment. Skip down with me now to verse 17. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, you destroyer of Israel? Some translations say you troubler of Israel. So Ahab is confronting Elijah because he he believes that Elijah, it's all his fault that there's a drought. He replied, I have not destroyed Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. He reminds Ahab that the reason there's been a drought is because Ahab has led the people of God to worship the the fertility god with a little g, Baal. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. The prophets of Asherah, the, the, the female prophetesses of Asherah, which is the female counterpart of Baal. It's interesting, while everybody else is suffering drought... These prophets of Baal are being able to feast at the queen's table. So Elijah says, summon them. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, here it is. This is if you don't get anything else, this is the truth for today. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh, which is the name for God, sometimes we use the name Jehovah. If Yahweh is God, that's the true God. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal... Follow him. That's a pretty good challenge, isn't it? To all these people who have, have, have left following the true God to worship pagan gods, to worship idols, to worship the fertility god and goddess of Baal and Asherah, says you choose today who you're going to worship. It's either God of heaven, the true God, or Baal. But look at this response. The Bible says, but the people didn't answer him a word. And somebody said, well, they didn't make a decision. I, I want to say that they did make a decision. 
Like somebody said, how many decisions did you have last Sunday morning at church? I said, well, we had about 400. 400 people decided to do something or decided to do nothing. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So Elijah's setting this up. I'm calling this challenge, drawing a line in the sand. It's me against them. Basically, it's God against them, right? But Baal's prophets are 450. Verse 23, let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, place it on the wood, but do not light the fire. Tradition custom was to put an animal of sacrifice on the altar of, of wood and then light the fire. He, but he says, do not light the fire. Then you, you, prophets of Baal, you pagans, you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh. The God who answers with fire, he is God. Pretty good challenge, isn't it? By the way, the God of Baal, little g, the, that they worship, the God of fertility, They said that he brought the rain and the thunder and the lightning. He was even said to be the one who brings the flashes of lightning. So really, you've been in a drought for seven years. It just makes sense. If your God really is God, he can bring a lightning bolt and start that fire. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, that sounds good. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull. Oops, I read that already, didn't I? No, I didn't. Choose for yourselves one bull. And prepare it first, then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that gave, he gave them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound, no one answered. You get that? He says to them, you worship this false God who you say is bringing the rain and making your crops fertile and all that stuff. You call out to him. And from morning till noon, they called out. There was no answer. They danced hobbling around the altar that they'd made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, and he said, Shout loudly, for he's a god. He's mocking them. He said, Shout loudly. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. Boy, he's just sticking it to him, isn't he? Just ribbing them. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then, verse 30, Elijah said to all the people, come near me. I think he's saying, I want, you to, I want to show you that I'm not pulling any trickery here. I'm not a magician. I'm not someone who's going to do a sleight of hand. Come near me. I want you to see what is about to happen. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. This place, Mount Carmel, was a place of, uh, actually, actually, it meant the, the vineyard of the gods with a little g. And the, the uh, gods of Baal and Asherah, no doubt, that was one of the high places where they built their altars. And at one time, God, there was an altar to the Lord there. And it had been, uh, needed repair. It had been broken down. Listen, the Bible says Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. He's reminding these people, this altar that he builds, they're to have a, a covenant with God. And he built an altar with stones in the name of Yahweh. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about four gallons. Next he arranged the wood, cut up the bull, and placed it on the wood. Then he said, fill four water pots or four barrels with water, pour it on the offering to be burned on the wood. Now, I wasn't a Boy Scout, but I know that when you go camping, you want dry wood, right? Not only did he say, 
pour water on it, the Bible says, a second time. And they did it a second time, verse 34. And then he said a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and even filled up the trench with water. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to say there's going to be no doubt that God did this. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, the traditional time for the people of God at the temple to bring the lamb, an offering of sacrifice, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached the altar and said, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all these things. I love verse 37. Answer me, Lord. Answer me, so that this people will know that you Yahweh are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That's a pretty unselfish prayer, isn't it? He's not praying, God, don't make make me look bad here. God, I want you to answer so that everybody here will know that you're God and you can turn their hearts back to them. The Bible says, then Yahweh's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust. I love this. It licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God is God. Elijah ordered them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. Just jump down with me to verse 43. As Ahab is there and Elijah calls him to Mount Carmel, the Bible says he bows down to pray. Verse 43, he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went and he looked and said, there's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back. On the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming from the sea. So Elijah's praying, he's still earnestly that God would bring the rain. And then Elijah said, go tell Ahab, get your chariots ready to go down so the rain doesn't stop you. A little while the sky grew dark with clouds and wind and there was a downpour. And Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah. He tucked up his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance to Jezreel. God brought not only the people to see that he was God, but he brought rain and answered the prayer of Elijah. Now, there are about 15 sermons in here. But what I want to do is just give you these seven principles or truths or lessons that we can apply to our lives today. All right, you already take notes? Number one, those who follow the will of God will be opposed and even viewed as troublemakers. Those who follow the will of God will be opposed and even viewed as troublemakers. Verse 17, the Bible says that when Elijah confronts Ahab, Ahab says to him, you're the destroyer, you're the troubler, you're the one that's causing problems. Have you found that to be the case? As you you stand for truth, people attack you and you're just trying to be right? The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.12, All those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen, Ahab is confronted by Elijah, and Ahab puts it right back in Elijah and says, Elijah, you're the troublemaker. Elijah says, no, I'm not. But let me just say a couple of things about this. Those who oppose us, God may want to speak to you through the words of your enemy. It's it's possible that when someone confronts you, and you may, may not want to listen to them. It may be that God wants to speak truth to you. So you need to be willing to listen to criticism, even if it comes from someone you don't respect. God may be using them. We talked about that last week. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, get your friend to tell you your faults, or better still, welcome an enemy who will watch you keenly and sting you savagely. Listen to your critics. But I believe in this case, it's not that. 
And God, what, what he may want to do is he may want to be drawing you closer to himself through the critic of your enemy, through the critiques of your enemy. God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, once again, I'm going to draw you in a deeper walk, a deeper relationship with me, and you're going to stand. Athanasius was one of the people who fought in the early days of the church in the third century um, to, to stand for the Trinity, the doctrine of, of God and the Holy Spirit and that Jesus was God in the flesh. And at one of the councils, the Roman emperor was there and, and the Roman emperor was on the other side of this thing. And, and he said to this, Athanasius, you pertinacious old man, don't you know that the whole world is against you? And I love what Athanasius says. He responds, then I am against the whole world. He's saying, I'm going to take a stand. If nobody's going to agree with me in the truth, then I'm going to stand in the truth. Listen, folks, when we take a stand for Christ, you're going to be opposed. You may even be viewed as a troublemaker. Number two, rebuilding should begin at the place of brokenness. Rebuilding should begin at the place of brokenness. Verse 30 says that Elijah said, come near, so all the people approached him, and he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. He takes those 12 stones to represent each one, to represent the, the children of Israel. So he's saying, we're, we're coming to that place where the altar had been torn down. I don't know if what Elijah was saying here is, the people of God used to worship you, they stopped worshiping you, and we're going to go to that place where they used to worship you. We're going to go to that altar, and we're going to start from scratch, we're going to rebuild it. That's exactly what he did. I think the principle here is, if you want to move ahead with the Lord, if you want to grow in your relationship with him, if you want to rebuild, you have to go back to that place of brokenness, that place of disobedience. There needs to be confession and repentance. Often people walk an aisle in this church and they say, Pastor, I want to rededicate my life to Christ. And I know what they're saying. You know what I always say to them in words like this? You know, usually when someone comes with this spirit of recommitment, there is something they've done there's a sin that they've committed that has, that has caused them to have a broken relationship with God. And I say, why don't you go back to that sin and say, God, I was wrong. You're right. I confess it to you. And if there's another one that God brings to your mind, to be specific, I, I watched this as a kid growing up. Kids went to youth camp every year and made a rededication. And then they went back and lived their life the way they wanted to. And then another rededication. And another rededication. Like the old man that used to responded every revival meeting he'd stand up and say lord fill me lord fill me finally after several weeks of this his wife got tired and said lord never mind don't do that he leaks <laughs> go back to that place if you say you know i feel like god has grown distance from me i don't feel as close to him as i used to go back to the place where you said no to him Go back to the place where you became selfish and you said, I don't care, God, what you want. This is what I want. Go back to that place and say, God, right there, right there is where I left you. I'm coming home. Like the prodigal son, when he was in the place of despair with the hogs, he realized right there that, that he had sinned against God and his father and he said, I'm coming home. Maybe you need to go back to that place of brokenness and say, God, that's where I got off track and I, I want your forgiveness. Number three, our most effective weapon in spiritual battle is prayer. Now this, you could preach three sermons on prayer from this passage. Ten sermons on prayer. The most effective weapon we have in the spiritual battle is prayer. I love this prayer of Elijah's. Look at verse 36. 
At the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached the altar and said, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. By the way, whenever they prayed that way, they're just reminding God and reminding all the people that he was for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's the same God today. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel. I am your servant, and that at your word I have done these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, Yahweh, are God. They'll turn their hearts back to you. And then later in the passage, Ahab, or, or Elijah prays and the rain comes. The most effective weapon in spiritual warfare in the battle is prayer. Folks, you need to understand. Listen to what Paul said in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord in his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. Look at verse 12. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against world powers of this darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. He goes on to say, this is why you need to put on the full armor of God. You know what Paul was telling the church at Ephesus? Satan is your enemy. It's not those other people in the church. It's not those family members that you don't get along with. The enemy is Satan, and he's the one that's trying to mess up your life. It is a spiritual battle, and you want to win the spiritual battle, you have to be on your knees. And God answers prayer. One of my Bible studies this week, I shared, and I'm going to share it again tonight, today. Uh, Erwin McManus has written a book called Unstoppable Force. He was a pastor in Dallas when I was up there started a church in downtown Dallas and things were going well and he was reaching people on the streets and they finally found a piece of property in downtown Dallas that they could buy that, that maybe they could afford because the price was so low and they, they talked with people and prayed and the money came in and McManus and his church bought the property and they were celebrating and they were ready to build and they called out the engineers to do a core sample and they drilled down and when they came back up with the core sample they found out that it wasn't good soil, it was basically trash. That, that lot at one time had been a garbage dump and it wasn't, it wasn't fit to build on. They were broken. They were hurt. They couldn't understand. And McManus talks about how he goes through this process of, Lord, I can't understand why you would bring us to this point. He was grieving that, that money had been wasted, that time had been wasted. And they began to pray. After months of prayer, a woman from the congregation came to, to Irwin and said, I love this. She said she believed that through prayer, God was going to turn that land around into something useful. I love women of faith like that. She said, Pastor, I believe that that garbage heap, God's going to turn it around and change it. And he, you know, he was like, yeah, really? But he so trusted this woman and so believed in her, her heart and her passion for prayer that he said, okay, let's see what God's going to do with this. And they prayed and they went and they drilled another uh, pilot hole to check the core sample and they found out that it was no longer garbage. It was fit to build on. And I thought, that's the way God works. He takes the garbage, we pray, and he turns it around. He changes things. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're going through. But I can almost promise you there's some garbage in your life. Prayer can change that. Prayer can turn it around. Number four, God's honor is at stake here. And when God's honor is at stake, he comes through. When God's honor is at stake, he comes through. This is not about Elijah. This is about God's honor. Again, in verse 36 there, today let it be known that you are God. Let it be known that you are God. That name Yahweh is the 
the, the name that comes from when, when uh, God spoke to Moses in, in Exodus and said, I am that I am. It's the verb to be. He, he's saying, I will be, I will be God. It's who I am. We, that other word for Yahweh is Jehovah. Jehovah Jireh, the God, the God who provides. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And on and on and on. God is saying, my honor is at stake. And I'm going to come through. John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor a couple hundred years ago. He used to believe in what he called large asking. People asked him to explain that. He would go back to a story of Alexander the Great, and a man had come to Alexander the Great, and Newton would tell the story. And the man asked Alexander if he could have a, a, an amount of money so, so that his daughter could marry, a huge sum of money, in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage. And Alexander agreed, and he told the man, whatever you want, we'll give you. And the man went to Alexander's treasurer and asked for this unbelievable amount of money in exchange for the hand of marriage of this guy's daughter. The treasurer went back to act Alexander and said, you know, he's asked for this incredibly large amount. We can't give it to him. And Alexander said, that's okay. He says, let him have it all. I like that fella. He does me honor. He treats me like a king and proves by what he asks that he believes me to be both rich and generous. I like that. Newton would tell us that story to say, this is the way God is. When we ask great things, when we pursue him by faith, when we, when we cry out to him, he wants to answer. And he comes through. I don't know about you, but I've been in, in places in my life repeatedly where in, in human terms, my back has been against the wall and I've not known where to go. And I've said, God, you just need to show up here. My wife, I like the way Kelly prays. She says, God, we want you to show up and show off. When God provided the money to build this building, we said, God, thank you for showing off. When God provided the money to buy the property next door and build the building next door, every time God has come through, we've said, God, that is your name that's being glorified. It's because of his great name. When we get in a place like that, God comes through because his honor is at stake. Number five, religion apart from God is futile. Again, there's a whole other sermon in here. Religion apart from God is futile. Did you hear the the account of what the prophets of Baal did. They cried out from morning to noon, dancing, crying out. They even cut themselves. They did everything till blood gushed and nothing happened. They were going through all this religious fervor to no avail. Folks, they were passionate, but they were passionately wrong. You know, there's a misunderstanding in our culture that if you're passionate about something, it's okay. They say, you're right. No, you're not. If it goes against the word of God, it's not truth. Be careful. People have left the faith and followed cults and followed other people just because they were passionate about what they believed. These folks believed in idols. They worshipped them. They cried out to them. Listen to to the psalmist's explanation of idolatry. I love this in Psalm 115. There are a bunch of passages in the Old Testament that speak to this, but I just love this. Verse 4, Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands, They have mouths that cannot speak, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. And they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats, and those who make them are just like them, as are all those who trust in them. Can I paraphrase that? Those people who worship idols make them with their own hands and then worship them, expecting them to change something in their life. It's futile. say, well, pastor, we would never worship idols like that. Let me tell you something. Anything other than God that you give your allegiance to is an idol. Your career, even your religion, if that's all it is, empty. 
empty. Back in World War II, when the Japanese and Allied forces would build airstrips on these isolated islands in the Pacific, the, the islanders there didn't have any contact with the outside world, were fascinated that these people showed up and they, they built a road and they built a tower and they, they stood there in their uniforms and they marched and they made hand signals and these airplanes landed and all this cargo came. And some of the cargo was given to the islanders. And when the war was over, those, those airstrips closed up and they left. And the people who lived there thought, we want what well, we got, the cargo shipments, we want that stuff. So they went out and they built airstrips and they built bamboo towers and they took, made uniforms for themselves that looked like the soldiers. And they even made, made to out of wood little headgear to put on and they, they moved their hands just like the persons that they saw bringing the airplanes in. And they thought if they would go through all of that, those planes would appear from the sky and bring them their cargo. They call them cargo cults. Folks, that, you say, that's ridiculous. That's the way some of us act. Those who might be here who don't know Christ and people in our culture, they go through all the motions thinking, thinking, just do all that stuff. Something will be good. And it's futile. A PhD student at Fuller Theological Seminary was from Ghana, West Africa. And I love this story. I've shared it before. Went back on one of his trips home to, to try to share Christ with one of his villages. And, and he shared Christ, but nobody made a decision, and he was, couldn't understand, and he remembered there's a witch doctor there, and the people were completely intimidated by this witch doctor because he kept a basket outside of his home, and it was full of water, and it never leaked. And he said it was his power, his authority, that kept that lattice basket from leaking. So this pastor who'd gone back to Ghana to witness to his village began to pray, God, show yourself, just like Elijah did. Show yourself to be the true God. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he got tired and he went, went to bed. And he got up the next morning and there's all this commotion in the village. He got up and asked what's going on and all the villagers said, look, the basket's empty. The water's run out of the basket because you prayed. We want to hear about your God now because his God couldn't hold the water. Folks, that's what God wants to do. He wants to show us that man's religion is futile. Only trusting him makes the difference. Number six. Indecision renders us either ineffective or lost. Indecision either renders us ineffective or lost. If you're a Christ follower and God is calling you to to either repentance or if he's calling you into some some type of work, some kind of service for him, some kind of place of obedience and discipleship, to, to, to be indecisive renders you ineffective. And if you're not a Christ follower, that lost term comes from the Bible. I didn't make it up. The Bible says to be without Christ is to be lost. It means, it means to need a Savior. And if, you, if you're indecisive, you're going to stay lost. It's interesting in verse 21. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? That word hesitate, in the verb form, comes, comes from the word that means to limp. It said, how much longer are you going to limp? How much longer are you going to be ineffective by not committing? One translator translated that verse this way. Instead of how long will you hesitate between two opinions, he says, what's it going to take to get you to follow God? I'll I'll ask that today. If you're not a Christ follower, what's it going to take for you to finally say, Lord Jesus, I know you died for me, and I'm willing to turn from my sin and trust you. If you're a Christ follower, I'll ask you this. What's it going to take for you to turn back to him? What's it going to take? Indecision can be a terrible thing. I read this week about a couple that, when they were 15 years old, he, he proposed to her. They were in Mexico. This was in 1902. Finally, in 1969, they got married. 
They just couldn't decide. I think, what about 60 wasted years? Listen, folks, we must decide. That's the message here. This is decision time. Elijah, all these truths are here, but it's so important. He's calling people to make a decision. You can't have it both ways. Jay Hampton Keithley says it this way. Those people who are indecisive, they feel the tug of God on their hearts and the love of the world at the same time. Like a fan oscillating back and forth, they become indecisive because they're trying to love God and the world at the same time. Indecision leaves us spiritually and morally lame and unstable in all our ways. I like that. You must decide. If you haven't trusted Christ as Savior, this ought to be the day. I'll say again to you, what's it going to take? And if you're a Christ follower, he's calling you back. Let me just ask you, what's it going to take? What's going to have to happen in your life to, to where you finally say yes to him? Love the story, Norman Vincent Peale. John Lavender tells in his book, Why Prayers Are Unanswered, tells about Peale as a little boy uh, found a cigar and went back behind the barn and began to smoke the cigar and was feeling all, all big, like a big shot. Actually, he's back in an alley. And he just felt grown up. It didn't taste very good, but he was so proud of himself. And he saw his father coming, so he put the cigar behind his back. And his father walks around the corner, and he foolishly says, sees a billboard, Hey, Dad, look, the circus is coming to town. Can we go to the circus? He's hoping to get his dad's attention off the cigar. Hey, Dad, can we go to the circus? I love what his father said. His father said, Son, never make a petition while at the same time trying to hide a smoldering disobedience. Sometimes we do that. Oh, God, please. And there's smoldering disobedience. We're, we're, we're living with one foot in the world and one foot following the Lord, and it doesn't work. You're straddling the fence. It doesn't work. You've got to be miserable. I've often said the most miserable person has to be a person who knows that they know Christ as Savior and they're living in disobedience because God's Holy Spirit needs to be constantly hammering that person. Decide. And I would say quit trying to pretend that you're spiritual when there's disobedience in your life. Number seven, never underestimate the impact of one life totally dedicated to God. Never underestimate that. Elijah stood up and said, I'm the only one. We find out later that there were others, but he thinks he's the only one. I'm the only one standing here. And he stood for God and God came through. James says he was a a man who had a nature just like ours, but he prayed earnestly. Again, he was an ordinary man, but he served an extraordinary God. Anjizi Bojaxiu was born in Albania, Macedonia. Anjizi was the youngest child in the family. As a young child, she was interested in missionaries. At age 12, she decided to commit herself to what they called the religious life that day. She ended up in India in the 1920s, began teaching. Later in the 1950s, she was burdened for the plight of the poor and dying. She opened the first home for the dying. We know her as Mother Teresa of Calcutta. 500 or almost 5,000 people in her uh, fold, the sisters who minister to people dying in 133 countries running hospices and homes for dying, homes for AIDS and HIV patients, soup kitchens, dispensaries. The list goes on and on and on. In 1979, she was given the Nobel Peace Prize. 
And I've watched tapes of her speaking truth in different prayer breakfasts around the world. And she just speaks truth. And I think, what, a, what an impact that one life had. Folks, what's to, what's to say that we can't have the same kind of impact? She went to the poorest of the poor and served. And God used her greatly. Author J.R. Vassar tells a story when he was in Myanmar, Burma, about a broken Buddha. I'm going to close with this. He writes, One day we were prayer walking through a large Buddhist temple when I witnessed something heartbreaking. A large number of people, very poor and desperate, were bowing down to a large golden Buddha. We've seen that, those of us who've been to Thailand. They were stuffing what seemed to be the last of their money into the treasury box and kneeling in prayer, hoping to secure a blessing from the Buddha. On the other side of the large golden idol, scaffolding had been built. The Buddha had begun to deteriorate, and a group of workers was diligently repairing the broken Buddha. He says, I took in the scene. Broken people were bowing down to a broken Buddha and asking the broken Buddha to fix their broken lives while someone else was fixing the broken Buddha. He said, the insanity and despair of it all hit me. We are no different from them. We are broken people looking to other broken people to help fix our broken lives. Looking to other people to fix what they cannot fix is a fool's errand, he says. Folks, I think there's a picture of people who are broken crying out to something that's broken to fix them. And Elijah says, let people know that God, you are God, the only true God. Let's pray together.